and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, by the time you listen to this, we'll be into Horse of the Year show week with all the excitement from that end of season indoor showdown. And I'm also really looking forward to the US Autumn Five Star at Maryland next week. We're kicking off this week's episode by talking to young show horse producer Will Morton, who chats about his Hoy's memories, including his first visit to the big event. Going actually to Hoy's, we didn't really have any expectations other than I think he was actually put in the horse and hound the week before as one to watch that week. So that was really nice. I'll then be talking to our news desk about the use of sedatives in raining, new proposals around the tack used in top-level dressage and tyre safety month. Finally, farrier Sam Draycott will talk about getting into the profession and qualifying as a farrier. Once you're qualified, that's when the real game starts because then you're on your own. I've probably learnt a lot more things after my college than I did actually through college because you're out on your own and you take on the world. So pull on your overreach boots and let's get going. Hello and welcome to this week's Horse and Hound guest interview. I'm Alex Robinson, showing editor here at Horse and Hound. So yes, we're gearing up for the 2022 Horse of the Year show. Um, Hoys set to be held at the NEC in Birmingham between the 5th and the 9th of October. I can't believe how quickly it's actually come around. I mean, the qualifiers have only recently stopped. Well, it feels like that. And yeah, we're very soon to have the final and ahead of the show we're very lucky to be joined by showing producer will morton who's gearing up for another busy hoise with um a team of horses qualified and he's actually taken some time out to come and speak to us which we're yeah grateful for hi will how are you doing hi i'm really good thank you how are you yeah, I'm really well, thanks. So yeah, Will first rode at Hoys in 2013 in the popular SEIB Search for Star series. And he's since gone on to become one of the best on the circuit. And he's been to Hoys every year, enjoying some fabulous placings. And I'm sure he's gearing up for another very busy show. So Will, how many of you got going to Hoys this year? And, and how's prep been for you? I know it's always a busy time. Yeah, it's been really busy. I've only actually got, uh, I think we've got six going from the yard. Um, we qualified quite a few more, but there's other people who are riding there, others, and I've got a couple that aren't going. But mm-hmm. yeah, so we've got quite a busy couple of days while we're yeah. there. So Super. And, and what's kind of preparation been like for you? Is it kind of getting out and about and, you know, obviously clipping them and everything's a major part of it, isn't it? Yeah, the coats are the biggest kind of mm. pain, really, like trying to work out who's clipped, when to clip them. Especially this last week, it's kind of gone from being summer to winter with no mm-hmm. in-between. Um, <laughs> so yeah, now I clipped one yesterday and I thought oh, I could keep his coat, but actually <laughs> another week with this cold weather, he's probably going to be like a little fluffy teddy bear. So <laughs> no, he's, it's a horrible time just clipping and taking rugs on and off and putting rugs back on and checking them at night before you go to bed if they need any more rugs on. 24-7 job. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and um, when, when do you kind of head down to Hoy's? Um, will you stay for the week? Um, I'm not actually got anything in until the hunting day on Friday. So mm-hmm. we're going to head up Thursday and then we're through then until Sunday. 
Super. So the first time you rode at Hoy's, Will, was in 2013 with your Cobb Cobber, and that was in the SEID <laughs> Search for a Star series. Um, and you actually won and you were a reserve champion, if I've got that right. Can you just tell me a bit about yeah. Cobber and, you know, that first time riding there? I mean, I can imagine it was a massive occasion. Yeah, it was. Um, to be honest, I started riding him when I was 15. He was my, well, he's my mum's cop, still got him at home. Yeah, we just kind of started off on the local circuit, did a few county shows. We qualified for the Royal International that same year as well. Mm-hmm. I know we didn't. That was the year after. Sorry. No, we qualified for the search star, but we were actually third twice. We didn't actually win one of the qualifiers. Right. And then we got a phone call kind of wasn't long before Hoyes. It was about three weeks before just saying someone had dropped out and did I want to go? And obviously I was in school. I think it was in science and my mum rang me. And it was like, I can't talk. She went, no, no, you need to talk. So I had to make some excuse to leave, go to the toilet or something. Um, but yeah, so I left and my mum rang me and said, we've got a space at Hoys. And yeah, it was so, yeah, it was exciting. It was like a dream for me. Um, so yeah, then we went and we won it. So that was even better. <laughs> so yeah, no, it was good. Gave me a taste for it anyway. So. Yeah. And what was it like kind of riding there for the first time? Was there, were there a few nerves? Because I know it's such a atmosphere at Hoys, isn't it? No matter, you know, even if you're in the international arena or if you're in the, you know, the slightly smaller top spec arena. Yeah. What was it like? Yeah. I mean, it was quite daunting. Obviously, I was only 15 and we kind of went there a bit. Like, not really. Obviously, we'd done a lot of showing like local and county level, but not anything major like that. And obviously with it being a bit later on in the year, the whole clipping thing, you have people tell you to clip 10 days, some people saying 14, some people saying don't clip at all. And it's like, what do you do? And um, yeah, so we were kind of going a bit blind really. And we went, it was absolutely chucking it down all week. Um, <laughs> and you don't realise actually kind of the extent of how big of an operation always is. It's so artificial and unnatural. Like it's not a showground, it's just a big car park and mm. it's mad, but it's incredible at the same time. And then you came back the following year with Cobber and you were second in the in the lightweight final and you were you were just 17 at the time. So how was that, Will? Because I imagine you're riding against all those producers and professionals and you're only 17. Can you just talk me through that? that I bet that was absolutely incredible. That was, yeah, that was probably one of the highlights of my career ever, mm. like even now. Like we were still, I was still an amateur and it was our first season doing open qualifiers. We were lucky enough to qualify, I think, second attempt that year. He had a really good year and we won quite a lot and he was going really well. And yeah, going actually to Hoyes, we didn't really have any expectations other than, I think he was actually put in the horse and hound the week before as one to watch that Mm -hmm. week. Um, So that was really nice. And then, yeah, it kind of went with no expectations and to be second to fate commonly that year at Simon um, was, yeah, it was incredible. So, and then to go in the championship that evening with... I mean, it was, I stood in the ring with Simon Charles, Rob Walker and Jay. Wow. And I mean, I was only 17. That was for me, it was just like three of the best in the business. Well, three of the best in the business. Wow. And you've um, you've obviously ridden there so many times since. Have you got any other kind of key memories that stand out? Um, yeah. I mean, I've had some really good, I've had some really good results there. I've never been lucky enough to win again yet. So hopefully we'll get that at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. But um, I've had some very good seconds. Actually, last year I was second in the Cuddy and in the horse section. And actually going in the evening performance with an in, with a three-year-old in hand, that was, I loved it. Yeah. It was really good fun. 
Yeah, no, that was great fun to be fair. I love that. Uh, the riding horse as well. I was second with him last year and that was, again, we went with, it was his first time there. So we didn't really go with any expectations. And I always think they're the best ones when you don't really go expecting anything and they kind of exceed it more, really. Super. And um, as we all know, it doesn't always go to plan. And no matter how much preparation you can put, you put in ahead of the show, sometimes it just doesn't work out. And yeah, we do all have times we'd we'd rather forget. Have you ever had times where, you know, a young horse might have caught you out or, you know, things haven't quite gone to plan in the ring? Yeah, I mean, there's times I've had one catch me out a little bit. Yeah, you've got a horse that you think, or you know inside out, but they've never if they've never been there before, you go in, think, right, I've given it enough work or, yeah, and they can catch out. I mean, it's there's no show like it. So there's no, unless you've had a horse going there year in, year out, and you know them inside out, then if you're taking first timers, you can never quite 100% prepare for it. Just have to kind of trust your gut instinct almost. But mm-hmm. no, it's timings and probably my weakest point. Uh, yeah, my weakest thing. I'm not not very good yeah. at timekeeping. I, the team around me has to be better timekeeper than me. Um, <laughs> last year for the racehorses, I I think I was getting my jacket on and getting ready as the class was kind of being called, and it was oh, no. I, think I trotted. I tr- had to trot down to the ring. Um, that nearly caught me out, but luckily she was good horse. She went in, and went well. So. Yeah, and it's a long way from the stables to the ring, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> forgetting things down at the stables, you have to make sure you don't forget anything because there's no going back for it. <laughs> and um yeah you just mentioned there Hoy's the atmosphere at Hoy's is it's completely different to any other show and most of the season we've spent our time competing out on grass in big arenas how do you prefer prepare those younger horses for the atmosphere at Hoy's um the BSA train that champs is always a great show mm. Lucy does a great job of putting on a show um we were very unlucky this year with what happened but that the Eden Door and Eden Informants there, I think, is probably the closest thing we can get to the atmosphere. Um, obviously, this year, we didn't get it for some of the horses. But other than going out to arenas, indoor arenas, hiring them, playing music, get other people on them, different riders on them, give them a little judge's ride as such. And mm-hmm. I try to do a lot of different things with them. So when they go there and it's different, it's mm-hmm. not too out of the... Like out of their routine, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think horses get stuck going around in circles in the school and then they go and it's such a big shock to them and it shell shocks them. Whereas if you do plenty with them, make a, give them a variety, then yeah, hopefully they won't be too shocked when they get there. <laughs> and um, and just finally, Will, so, I mean, the competition's the, the main part of Hoys, but do you ever get any downtime when you're there? Because, you know, it's a really nice opportunity to catch up with people. Everyone's kind of in the same place, which is quite rare for, for showing. Um, but, yeah, do you get any downtime and what you kind of like to do outside of the classes? Um, yeah, you might get a bit of time to go and wander around, have a look at the show itself. But to be honest, like last year we had horses in every day, so it was kind of once you're done in the morning with your classes, you then spend in the afternoon and evenings getting ready for the next day. So yeah. uh, we we managed to get out into the uh, resorts world for a dinner a couple of nights last year, but nothing too big and heavy. <laughs> <laughs> no celebrating as such, but um, <laughs> yeah, no. If we can, if there's a night off, say we've not. Got, I think Saturday night might this be a bit of a quieter night this year because we've mm. only got one in Sunday. So it'd be nice to get out for dinner with friends and catch up. So super. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Will. Um, best right. of luck at Hoys. And yeah, we can't wait to, to follow your results. Well, thank you very much. 
So I'm joined now by all three members of Horse and Hounds news team to have a look back at some stories that uh, they've been writing about over the past week. So first of all, a hello to our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you doing, Eleanor? Yeah, really good. Thank you. Had some very exciting news in the last week because my mare has, uh, it took all summer to get her in foal. And then, of course, it was twins and they pinched one and we had a scan, but she's finally had the heartbeat scan. And so I've got a baby on the way. How exciting. <laughs> that is very exciting. And remind us who the stallion that is that her baby will be by. He's called Clint Spot On and he is a son of Warrior who jumped at the Olympics. So, and he's a very blingy chestnut. So, I may have a blingy chestnut foal in a year's time. <laughs> and remind us what color your mare is. She's grey, so I'm thinking it, I'm 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 no expert in color genetics at all, but I think it will be grey or chestnut. I am no expert in colour genetics either. And I feel like we're going down a route where people who understand colour genetics are going to start throwing things at their radio or podcast. <laughs> yeah, shall we move on? <laughs> Let's move on. Eleanor's foal will, will be born and will be a colour, ladies and gentlemen. We look forward to bringing you more on that. Let's move swiftly on and introduce our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. How are you, Lucy? I'm very well, thank you, Pippa. I was going to roll into the colour genetics then because I'm a chestnut and neither of my parents are, but I think <laughs> I'll leave it. Um, and anyway, moving on, I've been at Osbiton this weekend for the Young Horse Eventing Championships and I, I really love seeing those super exciting sort of five, uh, four, five, six and seven-year-olds coming through. Um, yeah, some really exciting firepower for some of our top riders there. Yeah, definitely. And Piggy March had a 1-2 in the seven-year-old class, didn't she? Yes, she did. So that's really exciting, particularly when you think that, you know, two weeks ago she uh, won the uh, eight and nine-year-olds at Blenheim and obviously Burley as well. So, you know, when you're looking at sort of horses through the levels and what's coming in the future, that's, yeah, really, really exciting. Yeah, well, shout out to her with her win on Dasset Arthurland and second place on Brookfield Future News and to all those winners at Osbiton. And we also have with us our other senior news writer, Becky Murray. How are you doing, Becky? I'm good, thank you. I got soaked in the rain this morning. I was waiting for the vet to come and vaccinate my little rescue pony, Gilly, who I don't think I've introduced, actually. Um, she was my new arrival at the uh, end of summer. Tell us more about Gilly. What has she been rescued from and what's she like? Um, so she's from, I got her from World Horse Welfare's Penny Farm and she is a little Welsh section A. She's currently done, but we probably won't go into that. Um, <laughs> she, I think she might turn grey. But um, she is lovely. Um, she came put into the farm as a big rescue case last year and she is a yearling and very cuddly and curious. So we're doing lots of handling work with her and showing her the world and she's still sussing out my Shetland ponies. Ah, <laughs> oh, bless her. Ah, oh, well, good to hear about Gilly. We look forward to getting more updates on that. More updates on Eleanor's chestnut grey or another colourful. <laughs> um, <laughs> as time goes on. Right, on to the real news. Eleanor, you have been following a story for a couple of weeks now about the use of sedatives in reining competitions. And we I know that this the story that's in the magazine this week is sort of a follow-up story, but we haven't touched on this yet in the podcast, so I'm going to take you back through the uh, th through what's happened from the start. What's the change that's kicked off this story? Yeah, so this is the uh, the National Reining Horse Association in America, which uh, approved changes to its policy, which allows romifidine uh, to be given to horses half an hour before they compete. And this is a drug that's intended to be a, a sedative, basically. Um, and obviously, there are, you know, there are strictures on that. They they have to fill in a form saying they're using it and all that sort of thing. 
but obviously it's a decision that has proved to be controversial. Mm, for sure. And there was a particularly strong reaction to that that you when you spoke to Rowley Hours the, um, from World Horse Welfare. What did Rowley say? Uh, he described it, the decision as outrageous as it is wrong. Um, and he's basically the, the, there was a, a overall change to the policy that increases the penalties for, for breaking anti-doping rules. Um, and that has sort of been the justification to allow this change, which uh, Rody Hours said was simply extraordinary. And, and one thing he said, if a horse's temperament isn't suitable for competing without any sort of drug use, then the horse probably either needs further training or maybe it's not suited to that discipline. Mm, okay. And then this week, you've been following up with some thoughts from British and European reigners and speaking to British reigning chair Francesca Sternberg. What did she say about it? Yeah, so she, they have, uh, British and European reigners have, have really strongly condemned and called it a horrifying decision and sort of said that uh, they are affiliates of the NRHA, but they have their own rules and specifically their own medication policy, which they say is very tight and basically FEI rules. Um, and uh, they say their stance is, is zero tolerance and high penalties for doping offences, like, you know, the, as is standard in other disciplines, bans, loss of time titles and prize money um, and she British reigning is among the bodies that have said to the NRHA you know we don't support it and and they're very much hoping the decision will be rescinded before it comes into force. Mm, okay and was there any further comment from the NRHA after after the sort of that that comment from British reigning and, and others? Yeah, so they told us that the, the British reigning letter has been forwarded to their board of directors, directors, as is any other communication received. They say they're responding and forwarding it. They have regular meetings and there are conversations and topics being discussed. So we will see whether the rule does actually come into play or not. Mm, okay, well, we will watch watch that with interest and see if there are any further updates. Thank you, Eleanor. Becky, you've been writing about new proposals around tack and kit in dressage. What's being proposed here and, and where's this come from? Well, around summertime, the FEI formed the Independent Equine Ethics and Wellbeing Commission. And this was created to develop a framework that will allow the FEI to address current and future concerns related to the use of horses in sport. Now, the commission has been looking at various things um, from social license to rules in the different disciplines, and it puts some recommendations to the FEI basically to start a discussion. Now, one of these recommendations was a proposal to make the use of double bridles optional in international Grand Prix dressage at the top level and to potentially make spurs optional in all FEI disciplines. OK, and this has provoked quite a strong reaction from the International Dressage Riders Club, the IDRC, and the International Dressage Trainers Club, the IDTC. What did they say about it? Well, these organisations published a joint letter to the FEI and the Ethics and Wellbeing Commission and quite strongly opposing this proposal. They believe that the rules already around hack and equipment prevent the misuse of double bridles and, or spurs. And they say the opposition to a double bridle comes from a lack of understanding in terms of how and why it's used. They have acknowledged that misuse of a double bridle can lead to force and injury, but they also point out this is obviously the case of a snaffle too and they say that making double bridles and spurs optional would have no positive impact on welfare. 
But there has been some more positive reaction to this suggestion, people, organisations coming out in favour. Give us a bit of detail on that side of things. Well, I spoke to Rolly Hours of World Horse Welfare and he said it was curious that it, it would be considered controversial. He said double bridles can be a useful tool, but also a powerful one. So he said it seems right to give riders that choice whether they use them or not. I also spoke to dressage rider Gareth Hughes to see what he thought about it. And he said he understood both sides of the argument, but he said that we should be more focused on the riding, whether that's in a snaffle or a double bridle. He said, you know, it's about producing horses well and looking at what the judges are looking for. Okay. And what happens next with these proposals? Well, the proposals are part of an ongoing consultation, so there are still discussions taking place and the FEI told me the recommendations have been shared with the technical committees for feedback. The next step is an interim report will be presented at the General Assembly next month, so we should hear more after that. Okay, well, there's another watch this space to see uh, to see what's going to happen there. Thank you, Becky. Lucy, it's Tire Safety Month and you've been writing about advice for horse box owners with regard to tyres. And there was actually a law change last year, which is relevant to this, wasn't there? Yes, that's right, Pippa. It's kind of it's a timely reminder really of that law change last year. It's actually it's illegal for vehicles with a gross mass over 3.5 tons to be using tires that are more than 10 years old on the front steering axle axle axles. Um and I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it's important to be aware of this. Uh, firstly, because um, the safety aspect of you, your horses, other road users, but also because there are some really, really significant fines um, and legal ramifications that can go with it if you are caught. Mm, okay. And what advice is being given to horse box owners in general in, in this area of tyre safety and indeed winter safety for horse boxes? Well, yes, like I said, it is tyre safety month but it is this time of year it is a real timely reminder to be doing checks on your horse boxes as we're heading into uh, for some people it'll be you know a bit of a quieter season not for everybody of course um, but if your horse box particularly if it's going to be standing a bit more than usual the last thing you want is when you need it in an emergency or you're not an emergency you know you're just taking it out and for for things to have seized up or to have just not be working or for the, the, the damn thing not to start um so you know just doing those checks visual checks checking your tires there's some really good online um advice about how to do basic checks of your tires but really what you want to be doing is just making sure you know there's no lumps and bumps that the treads aren't worn down and starting it taking it for a little drive occasionally if it is going to be standing a lot you know draining the water tanks um uh, making sure that the other fluid levels are topped up just keeping it you know just taking care of it really um not leaving it to seize up over winter and then having a problem when it does come to you wanting to use it as i said either in emergency um vet situation or just next season when you bring it out again it's responsible for for your safety as i said for your horse's safety you know your, your most precious possession is in the back there but also for everyone else on the road the roads are busier these days it's just it's not something to skimp on mm, for sure and finally there is a consultation currently going on around who can drive what size lorries can you give us a quick overview on that one Yes, this is interesting too, um, particularly in the context of, as we saw, the scrapping of the uh, car and trailer towing test last year. So this is a consultation about whether drivers um, with a car licence uh, 
could be allowed to drive lorries up to seven and a half ton without taking an additional test. So it's again, it's a, a discussion about whether a return to previously held grandfather rights, um, which is those who have passed their driving test before the 1st of January 1997 can drive larger vans and smaller lorries um, and whether ex you know that could be uh, extended um, to cover more people. Um, so it is just a consultation at the moment. I think it runs until about the 28th of October and yeah, it'll be interesting to see the outcome of that. And yeah, just to confirm, the consultation closes at 11.45pm on the 28th of October. Great. Well, thank you very much, Lucy. And thank you to Becky and Eleanor for joining us today too. Throughout the year, Horse and Hound sends reporters out to all the biggest events in the equestrian calendar to cover the action for our weekly magazine and our website at horseandhound.co.uk. The coverage we bring you on these two platforms is different. The weekly magazine provides your comprehensive curated roundup. We reflect back on the big wins and analyse all the results with insight from our team and experts in the industry. Meanwhile, on our website, we bring you the news as it happens. We speak to the riders as they leave the arena and report their thoughts in lightning quick time, covering all the biggest stories as they unfold and often producing 10 or more stories every day online from a big show. The first five articles you read on our website are free each month and beyond that you need to buy a subscription. The cost of this reflects the fact that we need a bigger team at events when we are creating extra articles on our website and not only producing a magazine report. To buy a Horse and Hound website subscription, visit horseandhound.co.uk and click subscribe, or for great value, in the same place you can buy a combined magazine and website subscription. We know that magazine subscribers are our most loyal audience, and we really value your ongoing and vital contribution to our business. Therefore, if you are already a magazine subscriber, the cost to upgrade your subscription to include full website access is minimal. Call 0330-333-1313 to find out more. We're going over now to Sam Draycott. Sam is a farrier based in the south of England who specialises in remedial and laminitic shoeing. Sam has hit nationwide fame sharing his day-to-day -day work on TikTok and has 2.3 million followers. Over to you, Sam. So today on this episode, I want to talk about what it is to become a farrier and what it takes to be a farrier. So your first steps of becoming a farrier is to obviously find yourself a college that they do a pre-farrier course. So these courses are available, I think, in only three colleges now. It might be less now, but um, these courses, they make you do small pieces of general blacksmithing work. So it could be like a straight point, it could be a square, it could be a shackle, anything like that. So they, they'll teach you how to make these up to a certain standard. Hopefully you pass straight away. Sometimes it can be a 12-week course. I think a two-year course is a long one. But once you've gained that um, qualification, that gives you your ticket to actually apply for an apprenticeship. This bit, actually getting someone to take you on as an apprentice is actually quite a tricky thing to do because there's a lot of guys out there who want to become farriers, um, and they sort of, these ATFs or training farriers sort of have a pick of the bunch, really. So once, once you've sort of gained yourself a place in an apprenticeship, this is a four and a half year, almost marriage between you and your boss, because you're there five days a week, 
from I don't know, half eight, eight o'clock till whenever you finish, because it's not a nine to five job and you just have to start from scratch. So you learn the first stage would be taking off shoes. And then once you've done your first six months, you'll go up to college. The college will start putting you through general shoemaking and the anatomy. Once you've got your sort of first couple of weeks there, they will test you at the end to make sure you've sort of understood it all. You'll go back to your boss for another six months. And then your boss will probably take through the stage of trimming horses, making different types of shoes. You probably wouldn't be applying these shoes just yet because obviously you've just started. And um, once you've got another six months sort of experience there, you go back up to the college and they'll be taking through the next stage. And this goes on like this to your second, third year. And then fourth year, you've obviously gained enough skills to know all the anatomy from the knee down or sometimes a shoulder down, actually shoulder down, knee down in detail. So you would know that the veins, the arteries, ligaments, where they attach, where they originate from, how the bones grow with the cartilages, what's actually in the bones, how the bones made up, the hoof wall, it goes on and on and on with all the anatomy, which takes you four and a half years to learn. You, you take your last exam, which is your diploma. So this is your ticket to getting your qualifications to basically go on your own. Hopefully you pass that, which is a two hour exam. These examiners come along and they go, right, I want this type of shoe, that type of shoe, one front, one back, what you're to make them from scratch, put them on all up to standard. So every stage they'll be watching you produce a shoe that has to be up to standard with the nail fits and the shoe fits the hoof. And it's, yeah, all that has to be ticked off, the finishing at the end, and then they will give you a result hopefully in three months after. Once you're qualified, that's when the real game starts because then you're on your own. So I'd say I've probably learned a lot more things after my college than I did actually through college because you're out on your own. You, you see a lot of things that your boss or your old boss would sort of shield you from and that would, or they would do themselves because if you're just learning, you haven't quite got the experience for it, but. The college and the course gives you enough experience and time to be able to go do, take on the world. So once you've first qualify, you think, right, I've got to do, take on anything and everything. So you'll have youngsters, horses that are generally bad to shoe because they're nervous or they're just not very nice horses. You sort of take on everything. So you would just push yourself to take on everything from once, once you start gaining a few clients and you've got a few nice ones you get on with, not everybody you'll get on with, not everybody will get on with you. Not Some horses won't like me. Some horses might like someone else. That's just how it is. I'm afraid Yeah, I've, I've worked with some other guys and they can chew horses absolutely fine. And I'll go and shoe a horse as well. And it'd be a nightmare or vice versa. You know, it's just some horses don't like you. Some horses do. Um, once you've got that, then you've got to work out from, you've got to do logistics of where you're going. And you'll have six clients in that area and then suddenly one client can't do it. So that's a bit of a nightmare. And then you've got to try and figure out when you can next do that. And you have days where you lose a shoe um, and you have to drive miles for it. You're getting phone calls at like eight, nine o'clock at night and you're organizing vets and things like that. So there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes that people don't actually realize. They think a lot of people think kind of sitting at the end of the yard every six weeks expecting for people to come right, my horse needs to be shod tomorrow. Can he come tomorrow? And you're like, no, I've got people who book them every six weeks. So to actually keep that afloat is more work than you actually think. Um, so people don't realize that. So yeah, 
this, this job is not, not everyone's cup of tea. So I'll say every day is different, which is good, but it is hard graft. So if you are willing to do this, prepare to be willing to do it for a long time, long hours. Um, but there is good reward in it. You know, you do have a lot of people who absolutely love that appreciate you for coming out, you know, either helping horses or if you've got a horse that's lame, get a lot of satisfaction. If you manage to either pro prolong the horse's life or working life or actually get it completely sound straight away, that's, that was a good, good thing to happen. Um, so there is some good satisfying stuff there, but it is a tough job and it's, and it's not for everyone. So it needs to be well considered before you actually take it on. So if a farrier is life for you, then um, good luck and hope it all goes well. Well, that's the end of Sam's mini series. So it's a big thank you to him for joining us and sharing all his expertise. Next week, we'll kick off with a new expert, veterinary equine behaviourist, Dr Gemma Pearson, who will start by explaining what her job entails and the principles she works by. Our interview will be with double Olympic champion, Charles Dujardin, plus we'll review all the action from Hoys. Talk to you then. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.